Disrupting Japan, Episode 84. Disrupting Japan is sponsored by Wall and Case. If you've ever tried to hire staff in Japan, you know how crazy it can be. I mean, there are over 3,000 recruiting firms here, and they're all telling you pretty much the same thing. Well, the guys at Wall and Case are different. When you're coming into Japan, they'll sit down and work out a long term hiring strategy with you. Is it best to start with a country manager? Or perhaps a head of partner sales. Maybe the first step is really a community manager. Now, I've known the team at Wall and Case for a long time, and they've worked with a lot of the companies that have been on this show and with some of the world's biggest brands as well. So, if you're hiring in Japan, you really should talk to Wall and Case. Welcome to Disrupting Japan straight talk from the CEOs breaking into Japan. I'm Tim Romero. And thanks for listening. Japan, well, most of the world really, has an unhealthy obsession with Silicon Valley. I've been to Japanese language startup events here in Tokyo where the phrases Silicon Valley or San Francisco were mentioned more than twice as often as Tokyo or Japan. And yes, I actually did keep count. And I'm sure none of my friends are the least bit surprised by that. My point is that while Japan can learn a lot from Silicon Valley, the reverse is also true. There are a lot of things going right in Japan, and many things that are developing differently here than they are in Silicon Valley. Well, today, we sit down with Dave McClure. Founder of 500 Startups, and we talk under the cherry blossoms about startups, funding, failure, and about some of the most pervasive myths surrounding startups and startup founders. For our listeners who are not familiar with the Japanese tradition of hanami or cherry blossoms, I'll explain it to you in both theory and practice, because those two can be a bit different. In theory, Hanami is a time to reflect on the transitory nature of beauty, of our possessions, and of life itself. The cherry blossoms bloom only for a few days a year before their petals fall, and almost everyone in Japan, no matter how busy or sick, will make at least a little time to go out and walk among the blossoms. The trees really are beautiful, and that beauty is made all the more precious by the fact that they can only be appreciated for such a brief period of time. In practice, people from all over Japan get together with their friends under the cherry blossom trees, get rip roaringly drunk, sing karaoke, and have a great and boisterous time. So when Dave and I are talking, and in the background you hear schoolgirls laughing, drunken cheering, and people suddenly breaking into song, you'll know what's going on. It was a great party and a great discussion. So let's hear from our sponsor. And get right to the interview. Your journey to success in Japan will involve some twists and turns. In trying to navigate new terrain, planning the safest, most effective way through on your own can be overwhelming. The Carter Group have been using market intelligence and research to guide Japan entrants for decades. They've honed an agile, cost effective, but consultative approach that will help you find the perfect product market fit. Explore user and consumer dynamics and act as an honest broker to let you know the reputation and track record of potential partners here in Japan. And when you're ready to go, 
Their executive search team can also help you hire the right people to drive your business forward. So if you haven't got Japan completely figured out yet, the Carter Group can help you out. Cheers. Cheers. So I'm sitting here with the uh, indomitable and incorrigible Dave McClure. <laughs> incorrigible sounds right. So thanks for sitting down. I really do appreciate your time. You bet. You've, you've had ties to Japan for a long time. Uh, yes, probably about 20 years or more. Yeah. And you've been actively involved in, in investing here for about, what, about 10 years? Uh, maybe seven, I think. The first investment I made was a company called Gengo that was, uh, I guess, back in 2010. Although I, I met the founders a few years before that. In the past, you've talked a lot about how much the startup ecosystem has changed here, obviously for the better in the last 10 years. Yeah, definitely. But let's drill down a bit on the VC side because those same technological trends, cloud computing, the, the sharing of information, open source, that has allowed startups to be started for next to nothing, has allowed uh, venture capitalists to start for next to nothing. Well, next to nothing, let's say for companies, maybe you know, for half a million to a million dollars, and for VCs, maybe five to twenty-five million dollars. But uh, that, that doesn't necessarily fall from trees uh, or from cherry blossoms, I guess I would say while we're here. But uh, yes, it is a lot easier to secure capital for both entrepreneurs and for investors. What's your opinion at sort of a high level of the current state of the? the funding ecosystem here in Japan. So there's a lot of seed funds, there's a lot of traditional funds that are available for like mezzanine financing. Right. Well, there's not a lot of angel investors. Uh, there's not a lot of funds that are being run by operational ex-entrepreneurs. So I think a lot of the capital that you see in Japan is coming from more traditional financial sectors, either you know government related or financial services related. Uh, certainly a lot of corporate entities that are doing investment. Um, but some of those folks maybe are less familiar with the type of risk-taking that an entrepreneur has. Um, there are a few folks who I think have been maybe part of gaming companies like Gree or DNA, and you know, they probably have a little bit better appreciation, or maybe Rakuten or, uh, or SoftBank. But I think still a lot of the capital sources are more traditional, and so there's maybe a different thought process or framework around how to deploy that capital that's more conservative. Is that hurting the ecosystem, or is it something you think is just different? Well, I don't know if it's hurting it necessarily any more than in the past. I would say, you know, we, I, I would probably prefer that at least the early stage capital come from folks who have operational experience and understand needs of entrepreneurs a little bit more. But, you know, capital is good. I, I think having some amount of capital is certainly better than none. And as you mentioned, I think there's a lot more, you know, informed sources of capital than there may have been 5, 10, 15 years ago, for sure. But there's, there's definitely got to be people who have an eye for you know, what products are functional, what type of use cases are going to work, maybe who are more grounded in what the actual problems to be solved are. Uh, I think sometimes there's a little bit too much fascination with sexy topics, and just because everybody talks about robotics or talks about AR and VR or talks about drones, you know, you get a lot of capital flying at, you know, very glamorous, uh, shall I say, types of Well, the trends, the trends happen all over the place. But, for example, from a startup point of view, among young Japanese entrepreneurs, there is this kind of idea that the natural first step is joining an accelerator. An accelerator... Perhaps. 
Okay. The way I see it is like an accelerator, you know, uh, $50,000 in working capital is not really going to get you very far. And it, it seems like you're, you're... Maybe six to 12 months, but it probably won't get you to a real company of any scale unless you get a little bit more capital and, or maybe you can sell, you know, products and bootstrap your way there through cash flow. So what should startups be looking for? Is it that operational experience you were talking about before? I mean, I hesitate to put everything into the same bucket or category because different businesses lend themselves differently to how they grow. And I, I think sometimes we're guilty of just assuming that all companies are similar, and that's not really the case. I think, you know, you have people running a ramen shop, and you have people running an automotive, you know, sort of business, and you have people running internet businesses, and there really are different capital needs and different growth structures, different customer base. So I, I think sometimes... People get too much in, in this glamorous kind of worship mode about, you know, startups when I'd rather they really focus on who is the customer and what is the problem you're trying to solve and, you know, be passionate about that. Because I, I think we've, we've gotten to a point where now entrepreneurs are so glamorous, it's like more sexy than starting a band. You know, I, I feel like people yeah. do a startup just to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it turns out, you know, running a startup is actually pretty hard and pretty painful and doesn't pay very well. Yeah. And well, not for the faint of heart. No, I agree. It's, it's, it's astounding how the attitude has changed. When I was in high school, everyone was starting a band, and now everyone's writing an app. I guess, you know, for some folks, they will find their way to success, but it, it's a better structure. In my opinion, it's better when entrepreneurs start businesses because... They've had a frustration or a pain or a problem that they're trying to solve that they've understood for a while, or they know the customer and what the needs of those customers are and how they can address that. Um, as opposed to just, hey, I'm a coder and then I want to be a startup entrepreneur, and what's the brightest shiny object around the corner that I can build some apps around? Well, at the end, it's you're building a business. You're not building a, a, a product. Yeah, and I, I think people sometimes forget that. I and mean, so, you know, there's giant risks in going from just a concept or an idea to a functional product and even with a functional product there's a pretty big risk in getting to you know a product that customers use or buy and then even further risk in getting it to be one that they use regularly and, and kind of grow and scale. Looking at the Japanese financing ecosystem as it were I mean if you could change one thing to improve it what would you change? I'd probably suggest that there were a lot more investments of a lot smaller size. I think that uh, you know, one of the things that is successful in the Valley and maybe a few other places uh, where there are active angel investor communities is there's a lot of supportive entrepreneurs who have been you know around the block before. And you know you're correct in that fifty thousand dollars may not get you very far, but ten. $50,000 checks will. That adds up fast, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of the financing for entrepreneurs in the U.S. tends to happen from a lot of friends and family and angel investors first. And then, you know, probably accelerator programs and other small seed funds and other capital sources after that. In places that aren't Silicon Valley, I think people get into this cargo cult sort of structure where they kind of worship what they think is happening in Silicon Valley. Right, right. And so... On the investor side, people are looking for entrepreneurs that already have a business that's already generating revenue and doing really well or something, or they're looking for some very, I don't know, flashy, neon sign kind of story in a category that gets a lot of press or something. Yeah. 
uh, as opposed to just sometimes there's really basic and boring businesses that solve problems and make money. Like, you know. Well, I think there's actually been research done on the returns of boring businesses are significantly higher than those of exciting well, ones. That's, that's great to hear because that's probably the place where we're going to try and make money. <laughs> you were saying that there needs to be more smaller investments. Do you think that's because so much of Japanese VC is corporate VC? Well, I think probably it's hard to raise capital. Once you do raise capital, they're going to give you a million, two million dollars or something. And they've got Sometimes maybe people should be kind of taking that in smaller chunks. Uh-huh. I think also, you know, you should probably separate like, you know, types of businesses into ones that are using known business models versus unknown business models. And so a lot of the things that people are very excited about right now are things that are really new and very unproven business models. And I think we're optimistic that people will be able to create big businesses around, you know, things like, you know, artificial intelligence, maybe around visual recognition systems, around, you know, augmented reality. But but still, a lot of those business models are still being explored. Sure. But I mean, as a seed stage investor, that's your bread and butter, right? You want to get into unproven and new business model. Well, not necessarily. I think what we can do is look at businesses where there's an existing business model, um, but there's a different way of approaching that problem using technology, or there's certainly a different way of acquiring the customer using technology. And so a business like Uber, it's really, you know, a taxi driver business with a mobile app for locating the driver and the passenger, right? And so a lot of the innovation isn't in the business model, it's in just figuring out where people are. <laughs> all right, all right. And being able to integrate maps and payments and other information. So I would kind of call that more incremental innovation within a, an un, with a known business model. Uh, as opposed to like people might be trying to get into, I don't know, genetic technology for building you know, new types of organs or doing food uh, printing. Okay. So it's, it's almost, you're talking almost about an undefined business model where you, you don't right. have existing customers, even your customers are in the future. Or you don't know whether you're charging the customer directly or going through an indirect model. Okay, I can see that being really risky. So there's a lot of you know innovation and improvements around business efficiency that can be made with existing business models and really just applying technology in a more efficient manner and doing using technology platforms to reach customers online. And a lot of what we do is really around that type of business. All right. Um, and it lends itself, you know, pretty straightforward to businesses in, that are transactional in nature, um, people who are buying things as a you know corporate customer or as an adult consumer that work very well for maybe education or healthcare or fintech they don't always work so well for you know the next trip to mars <laughs> sure before you you mentioned that silicon valley can almost be a cargo cult of uh, you know people imitating what they think is happening in silicon valley yes i mean you operate in silicon valley you've got investments all over the world so let's let's dissuade people of some illusions. <laughs> Looking at Japan, what would you say is something that is common in Silicon Valley that Japan should not copy? Well, I think there's a lot of businesses in Silicon Valley that don't have that business model and are very capital intensive. And so that might be a social platform like you know Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat, or it might be a content or media business that doesn't have an obvious monetization strategy right away and I think you know there's a tendency to want to copy the sexiest things 
but sometimes the sexiest things don't actually make money, <laughs> or at least not right away. And there's the other things that I think are, you know, in fact, if you, it's interesting if you look at the parallel between Germany and Japan. Huh. Uh, there's a lot of businesses that Germany did that were knockoff businesses, uh, Samware Brothers and Rocket Internet were sort of famous for this. And they just took very straightforward business models and, you know, copied them into either German or they copied existing businesses and took them to the inter internet. All over Southeast Asia. Especially. And they've now expanded all over this. And you could argue with some, you know, maybe strategy and ethics issues that I think maybe challenge uh, a few particular folks. But there's nothing wrong with taking an existing business model and implementing it in a new geography and Absolutely. You know, making money on that. I think we didn't really see a similar set of businesses develop here in Japan during the same time frame, uh, or those businesses were being run by larger corporates like SoftBank and uh, Rockfan and others. There wasn't a lot of smaller startups taking advantage of like understanding what opportunities are in e-commerce and SaaS and getting those off the ground. I think now you're just starting to see, you know, e-commerce and SaaS entrepreneurs in Japan get started. When, in my opinion. That could have happened 10 years ago. There's certainly been an online population here yeah. that could have taken advantage of that. But what about what about cultural issues? So, for example, yeah. um, I'm, I'm not saying one is better or worse, but different is, um, so for example, employees at startups in San Francisco tend to change jobs very quickly, where in Japan they yeah, don't. Maybe every two or three years. I don't, I don't know that people change a lot more quickly than that. Yeah. But yeah, I think people tend to look at jobs more as projects. You know, and so there's an interesting project that I'm working on that might last for one, two, or four years, or maybe even longer. It's not usually going to last 20 years, and I think, uh, but I believe that's been changing in Japan for quite a while. I mean, I think over the last decade or two. Well, we've got a baseline that requires a lot more change. I mean, 30 years ago, it was lifetime employment. You right. never changed jobs. My, my father-in-law, you know, was part of Mitsubishi Electric and worked there for his entire life. My my brother-in-law worked there for five years and then left, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. is you know kind of a shock to the system, I think, for traditional Saturdayman kind of world. Yeah, so I I think you know focusing on things that actually provide value to customers, uh, usually in the form of them paying for it, uh, that can be a very I think strong guiding force. I, I would like to you know a lot of times I tell entrepreneurs to stay close to the transaction in terms of how they think about businesses. Okay. There's a lot of things you can do online. There's a lot of things you can do with technology, but a lot of those may not involve actually making money. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a good framework, I think. You know, even though there's lots of businesses in the U.S. that may be started out not making money, I think you have to be sort of grounded in what customers care about. Well, I, I agree totally, but I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep pushing you on this because I know you've said a lot of times that people should stop fixating so much on Silicon Valley. And I, I think that Japanese VCs and startups really do look at Silicon Valley too much instead of looking at what they what needs to be done in front of them. So, I mean, we've we've invested in probably you know 30 companies now out of Japan. I think we did 15 before we got the fund started here, and then more recently we've done 15 in just the last year or so. Uh, the businesses have been successful, been ones that are you know kind of more unique to what's going on in, in Japan. I think we. Found Gengo, which is doing language translation, primarily for corporate customers that are doing like e-commerce products or content products. Um, another company called Tokyo Otaku Mode that you know provides really kind of like a storefront for anime and manga and cosplay 
And you know, you'd think, oh, that's a uniquely Japanese business. All the customers are here. And it turns out, no, actually, much bigger business more overseas. Than, more than half of their customer base is outside Japan in the U.S. and the U.K. And so I think that's you know a business that has a Japan flavor but has a global audience. Okay, but are, do you think then that studying the way things are done in Silicon Valley really is the best approach to getting startups off the grounds? I think there's certain things about Silicon Valley that are helpful for entrepreneurs to study, but sometimes helpful to avoid as much as to follow. <laughs> what should they avoid? I think trying to build a product in your head that you know has some, I don't know, platonic form or structure that's like perfect. And ah. you know, most products I think are messy. Uh, most products hopefully are grounded in customer realities. And so even with a messy product, you kind of want to zero in on what people actually care about and what they buy. Not so much like, oh, I'm, I'm building a really beautiful product. This is satisfying some very, very utopian need or something. So that, that perfect is the enemy of good idea. That, that's exactly correct. Yeah. All right. And so, you know, a lot of the lean startup methodologies and philosophies, I think, are probably useful. Uh, strangely, they're Japanese in origin. I think you know a lot of the lead startup methodology From came Toyota. out of Kaizen and yeah. Toyota. Yeah. So it's funny how it's kind of like circling back as if it were, you know, a U.S. form of uh, best practice, but it's actually a Japanese form of best practice. I wish more Japanese startups realized that. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that in both Tokyo and in Silicon Valley, the influence of immigrants. On the startup community, the number of startups that have been started by immigrants is really high, based on their general population. Yep. Hybrid vigor, I believe. Yeah. Uh, is that something you've seen in other markets around the world? Um, well, I think we've always found people who are creative in approach. Um, I think in some places where there's more structured and formal culture in society, I think you find that creativity comes from people who are new or different from that society and so having the immigrant population or you know younger generations or people that have a different you know perspective will be able to break the rules and break out of those structures more easily so is that a universal thing have you seen that in germany and london and indonesia and well i mean i i don't know that i can make a uniformly stereotypical statement about that but I, but i think you know entrepreneurship is typically more from people who are not fitting into society. <laughs> That's true. And yeah. they take shortcuts and they break rules and sometimes they even break laws. But, um, you know, in maybe form more formal societies like Japan or the UK or perhaps some parts of India, that's harder for people to bust out of. Well, I mean, that makes sense because, I mean, immigrants most likely have not gone to the top university of that country. They're not on the fast track to anything in particular. Yeah, they may not be stuck in more traditional rules or structures or you know, yeah. cultural expectations. Right, so both the risks and rewards kind of push them into the entrepreneurial path. And there's probably a strong merchant class that has a level of familiarity and comfort with a lot of immigrants. All right. I've got a question that I usually ask as my last question, but I'm gonna ask it in the middle because I think uh, you're gonna have more than one answer. <laughs> And it's, it's what I call my magic wand question. And that is if I gave you a magic wand and I told you you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the legal system, the educational system, the way people think about failure and risk, yeah. anything at all, 
to make it better for startups here. What would you change? Huh. Well, I think probably the formalism of society and the uh, concerns about saving face, I mean, which is kind of strange to say that because I think that's one of the things that's great about Japan is it's a very polite society in a lot of ways that you know, allows 30 million people to live together in Tokyo without uh, killing each other. <laughs> <laughs> But at the same time, I think it prevents people from moving faster and, and kind of a move fast, break things sort of,、uh, you know, Zuckerberg sort of story. So, so, how would you change it? Would you change it more so it's just people be more willing to do it or more forgiving of the screw ups? Or... Yeah, I think the fear of public failure is probably the biggest challenge to、yeah. get over. You know, I think in order to iterate to success, you need to be able to fail you know, quickly. And without too much、uh, you know, ordeal.、And、sometimes that's hard in Japan. Well, it is, but I'm, let's dig into this because this is something that has always kind of bothered me about sort of startup culture in America. There is this macho bullshit, fail fast, <laughs> fail forward, you know, I'm not afraid of failure attitude that's celebrated. But in fact, You know, we don't celebrate failure in America. I mean, I went to、uh, Failcom. It's not a good thing to fuck up. I mean. No, no. <laughs> But it's, for example, I went to、uh, Failcon here in Japan. It was a great event. But it was all、uh, successful failures. So one failure was a guy who was forced to sell his company for $200 million. Oh, wow. That's a. I know, I'd love to fail like that's that. That's a huge fail. <laughs> God damn it. That sucks. $200 million. So, even in America, failure sucks. I mean, it's, it's not something that we celebrate. What is it really that's different? Well, I think there's just an approach to being a little too careful. Yeah. And so, not being as careful, it's not so much about failure as it is like, okay, there might be a downside risk scenario if I fuck this up, but I'm willing to deal with that. And so, it's more about pushing the envelope. Where there's the possibility of failure, not so much the actuality of it, because the actuality kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> Badly.、Um, um, I think some more basic things is you'd like to reform bankruptcy law here in Japan and make it easier for people, if they should fail, to not have a you know, long term debt hanging over their heads or their families' heads for a good period of time. I think the attitudes towards failure in America are. I mean, it sucks despite all the fail fast, fail forward stuff, but、um, I think structurally, America's set up to be more forgiving towards failure. I mean, you mentioned bankruptcy. What is your, are you more likely or less likely to invest in an entrepreneur who has failed in a previous attempt versus one who succeeded? Well, it depends on what they learned and what their path was out of that. I mean, I think we've, we've definitely written checks for entrepreneurs that we funded previously that did not have you know, positive outcomes. Uh, we've also not invested in entrepreneurs who've had successful outcomes who wanted to try their second venture. Usually that's around price and valuation. Oh, okay. But、um, yeah, I think we don't want to see that people handled adversity well or they handled success well. I think we've, we've seen examples of both handled poorly. So, as an investor, would you say that, would you favor an entrepreneur who has failed miserably over one who's never tried? Before?、Uh, I think if they failed miserably and they can't demonstrate any success, that's not somebody we want to invest in again. Well, okay, by miserably, let's say, I mean, 
they've learned from their mistakes. It wasn't, well, I mean, let's, it was let's just. Let's use a real example. There's a woman that we invested in who was building a travel-oriented business. And the original idea wasn't terrible. There was some possibilities there. They ended up having to pivot that business into something else that was trying to work better. And they ended up building kind of a mobile app that was reviewing you know, local restaurants and bars. And that's a competitive space. There's a lot of other products there. You know, that company eventually was not successful. They raised about $2 million. They spent a couple of years building a variety of products that didn't get to a large level of traction. Now, the experiences that that person gained were tremendous. And as a product manager, building mobile apps, incorporating you know, customer reviews, uh, dealing with a lot of you know, fundraising efforts, I feel like she learned a lot. And so I would easily write her a check again because I think that that failure, quote unquote, that she went through was a very useful and learning experience. On the so other hand, and, and let me contrast that with another person who had a modestly successful exit, like let's say in the five to $10 million range, but really only returned about one X, maybe 1.5 X as investors, and then did another business the second time that I thought was at maybe too high a valuation, but we still wrote a check anyway. And again, he had an exit, but it was not a you know, great exit. Um, you know, for him, it was a great sort of move for his career, but for us, it was not <laughs> great as, a, as an investment. So I probably, even though I respect him as an entrepreneur, I'm not sure I would write another check for that person because he didn't seem to prioritize his investors' returns that highly. It sounds like a really useful frame, whether it's you in Silicon Valley or a Japanese VC here in Japan, is what does this person know? And whether he got that knowledge through success, through failure, through uh, working with someone else is kind of irrelevant. Well, I think you can learn from success and you can learn from failure. I mean, I, I had a small business of my own that, you know, we grew to about 20 people, maybe 2 million in revenue. We got acquired. It was not a very big exit. In fact, I probably put more money into the company that I got out of it, but I got some money out of it. Um, but I learned a lot. Right? It was a lot of uh, things that I learned about managing a small you know, 10 to 20 person group and about managing finances and you know, fundraising and a lot of things. I also worked at PayPal in a very huge organization that was growing and I didn't necessarily build the company, I was just employed there, but I also learned a lot from watching that you know, story happen. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people give me more credit, way more credit from working at PayPal than what I would consider failing at running a small business. Well, and I think that I actually probably learned as much or more from failing, quote unquote, at the small business as I did working at PayPal. What I've noticed from my, my own companies over the years, a lot of times there is a one inch difference between success and failure. And there's a thousand things that go into it besides your own decisions. But people tend to view you through that lens. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, whether you are a mile over the line or an inch, doesn't matter. Yeah, I think that's true in a lot of things. I mean, people analyze sports in the same way. And, you know, you know if, you, if you look back at, uh, you know, basketball last year, the, you know, Cleveland Cavaliers won in game seven by just like, you know, four or five points. But people act like <laughs> they were geniuses. You know, like that game could have gone either way. And would have, you know, unfortunately for me, I'm a, a Warriors fan from the Bay Area. Uh, as opposed to a blowout where somebody won four games to nothing. That's different. I, I think that the hardest thing for me 
as an entrepreneur is to be grounded in reality. I think, well, and I would say really there's two things going on. Is you have to have this cognitive dissonance between a vision that you can see in the future that is achievable and not bullshit and the current reality which you are in at the moment. And the difference between great entrepreneurship and not so great entrepreneurship is whether you can connect the dots between the current reality and the future prediction. And are you actually predicting the future or are you just lying? <laughs> so whether or not you believe your own bullshit. Or whether the bullshit that you create is believable. Right, right. Like if you stretch that vision too far, it's not believable, it's not achievable. But if you keep it realistic... But I can, I, I, I can see that because, I mean, as a founder, you've got to be out there in front of people saying, this is what the future looks like. I'm painting this picture. And then you've got to turn around and go to your team and say, well, this is where we really are. And here's the next steps we have to take next Monday. But you have to manage the gap. I mean, I think that's the difference is like, how do you get from point A to point B when point A and point B look very different? And, you know, can you convince people to follow you from that path? You know, do you have a compelling vision about the path from A to B that, you know, a hundred other people will get in line behind you and follow you there? Because yeah. you're not going to get there by yourself for most, most businesses. Excellent. Listen, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, so you've been involved in Japan, Japan and Japanese startups for close to two decades now. Well, in Japan for two decades and startups for maybe one. One decade, okay. <laughs> but you've seen tremendous progress. Yes. And looking at all the changes, both positive and negative, what can you point to in Japan and say, this is going really well do more of this it may not be a startup sort of model but if you look at some of the larger companies that have been successful here i think you know certainly rakuten and softbank are very large companies that have been able to invest in new lines of business acquire companies roll that out to their customer bases and be successful um, i think you've seen some smaller but still large companies maybe in mobile gaming like dna agree have reasonable amounts of success um, I think you're starting to see you know, companies go after e-commerce and financial services and SaaS here. But I think you need to see successful role models that look like local heroes. And I think that's, you know, whether that's Masa-san or Mikitani-san or you know, some of the founders at other companies, I think. Or even just looking around at the people here. I mean, like, hey, we have, you know, probably 25 uh, founders that are hanging out here with us. And even just getting from point A to point A1, <laughs> uh, raising a round of capital, hiring a bunch of people, delivering products to folks, you know, that, that's commendable. Right? And so, you don't necessarily measure progress over a decade in just one jump. You measure it in a lot of little jumps. So, a lot of steady progress. Yeah. Excellent. Listen, Dave, thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Hopefully uh, some of that made some sense. Kotowork is doing something pretty cool. It's a community of Japanese language students who want to work at Japanese companies with global ambitions. Kotowork also trains them in business culture, Japanese hospitality, and a bit of global marketing. And since it's a real community, Kotowork is always there for both candidates and companies to solve cultural misunderstandings and the hundreds of other little problems that can come up when foreigners work for a Japanese company. Kotowork has a wonderful, long-term, community-based approach to making sure everything runs smoothly, and you should really check them out at kotowork.jp.
And we're back. You know, maybe there is something fitting in that we were having a conversation about how people underestimate how much work is involved in startups and how too many founders are misled by the false glamour that startups have today. And we were trying to make these serious points in the middle of a giant party. It's kind of a metaphor for what's actually involved in running a startup or a VC fund these days. I thought Dave's point about the kinds of business models that he considers risky was an interesting one, and it's different from how most VCs view it. The first cut that differentiates risky models from the non-risky counterparts is not whether it's been done before, or the strength or age of the competition, but how well-defined the relationship to the customer is, and how close the startup is to their customers. With all the attention placed on the technologies and the wow factor, it's important to remember that a startup is a business, and success depends to a great degree on the ability to repeatably and scalably sell something to your customers. Amazing technology without customers is often worthless, but a boring product that delights its customers is often incredibly valuable. And as Dave and I discussed Things really are getting better for startups here in Japan. Slowly. Steadily. But they are getting better. It's easy to look at San Francisco and think about how far Japan has to go. But maybe it's better to look back just 10 years and realize just how far Japan has come and just how fast she's traveling. If you have an opinion about Hanami or risky business models, Dave and I would love to hear from you. So drop by disruptingjapan.com slash show 084 and let us know what you think. And when you come by the site, you'll see all the links and notes that Dave and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And hey, I know you've been meaning to do this for a while now, but when you get the chance please leave us an honest review on iTunes. It's really the best way you can help us get the word out and support the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan. <laughs>